Hello, everyone, and welcome to our The Week That Was in Europe podcast. My name is Dirk Schumacher. I'm the head of European Macro Research at Natixis, and with me, as usual, is Klaus Adam, Professor of Economics at the University of Mannheim. Yeah, hello, also from my side. So uh, today we will discuss briefly the last ECB meeting and then jump to our main topic today, and that's the outlook for the oil and gas market. Uh, for this, we have invited an expert. So his name is uh, Joel Hancock, and he's responsible for energy commodity research uh, at Natixis. Yeah, but let's let's do quickly what the ECB uh, did or said yesterday. That there was uh, no change in the policy stance, no 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 policy announcement, not even a, a small technical tapering. And the ECB remains quite confident in the economic outlook. Uh, says that uh, this may be a soft spa- spot we're seeing, but in general, the the underlying picture remains solid. And we had this morning the Q3 GDP figures, and, and they seem to justify uh, this this confidence. The French third quarter sequential growth came in at 3.0 percent, quite quite strong, higher than expected. And and French GDP is now more or less back to its pre-pandemic level. Spanish growth two percent. Uh, there's still quite a gap to the pre-crisis level um, of around six percent. The German number 1.8 percent as expected, but there's still also a gap. And, and Germany and Spain seem to be hit more by um, the supply side bottlenecks in the manufacturing sector. But um, when it comes to inflation, um, ECB conceded that it's going to be higher than thought in the next coming weeks, but then will start declining again next year here. Their view is that the medium term is no reason to panic yet. Right, Klaus? Right, but you know, still the, the temporary hike uh, already proves to be less temporary than initially promised. So this is going to remain interesting. But for the governing council, of course, what matters is the medium term outlook. And there they expect uh, inflation to be back below 2% again. Okay, And that would justify the continued stimulus. well, uh, you know, that suggests that unlike many other central banks like the Fed or the Bank of England, um, the ECB is in no mood uh, to embark on a tightening path. Uh, the market seems not to quite believe that. Uh, they are pricing in a small rate increase already during 2021. So it will be interesting to see who will be right on this. Indeed, and, and Lagarde uh, was quite adamant uh, about uh, that the, the market gets it wrong. Um, and, and one reason that the ECB is confident that inflation will, will decline again is that the contribution from, from energy prices will fade. And to discuss this in more detail, we have Joel Hancock with us. Um, again, thanks, Joel, for your time. Let, let's start with the natural gas price, which, which has surged from around 30 euros uh, at the beginning of the summer to around 90. So what, what, what's behind this, this huge increase? I'm very happy to be here. Um, thank you for the invite. So when we're trying to decompose the increase in that gas prices into certain factors, the key thing to note just for background is that the gas market really runs on flexibility. So consumption is highly variable between seasons <clears throat> and within seasons based on prevailing weather conditions. And we can all really relate to that, right? We're more likely to turn heat on when it's cold. And as such, the flexibility is embedded within supply contracts, storage, and the demand side via the ability to switch fuels based on relative pricing. Now, this helps to balance the market at any given time. 
Now, through 2021, we can conclude really that the European gas market's flexibility essentially failed. So the story really starts during last year's winter when we had extreme cold weather, first hit in North Asia in December, and then we saw the winter in Europe extending into April. We had a very unseasonably cold April. Now, typically we're building gas inventory for the next winter by April, but this year we actually saw stocks drawing down. So the market essentially entered the summer with lower than average gas storage. Now, in a normal year, we'd see that flexibility embedded within the gas market kick in. So prices would act to encourage marginal supply into the market and price to limit consumption. But through 2021, what we've seen is that the gas market's usual price triggers and flexibility has been relatively unresponsive to higher prices. So on the supply side, new supply or additional marginal supply into the market was quite lacking. So Norway conducted extensive maintenance and upstream facilities over the summer, which was postponed uh, from 2020 owing to the pandemic. So that limited the ability, the volume, sorry, of discretionary gas available for exports. Flexible LNG was increasingly diverted into other markets with Brazilian imports surging uh, with drought limiting output from hydro plants and Chinese industrial demand was also very, very strong through the summer. Um, the lack of spot LNG was also a bit of a supply story because we had some maintenance issues at some smaller terminals. And then finally, uh, Russian supply has trended near four-year lows. I think we will talk about Russia in a little while, but our thinking on Russian volumes has evolved over the year. So really, it seems like it's a combination of factors with Gazprom unable to divert additional gas to Europe due to a need to build domestic stocks. And we mentioned the weather in Europe. Typically, we do see weather events correlated across the northern hemisphere. So cold in a cold winter in Europe typically results in a cold winter in Russia. Um, and that essentially meant that Gazprom had to rebuild domestic stocks. So there wasn't as much marginal gas available uh, for Europe. But of course, lower Russian exports also make the case for Nord Stream 2, as we'll discuss. Now, on the demand side, the typical lever that would be pulled to limit consumption would be to switch fuels between um, gas and coal. So in a tight gas market, we typically see more generation shifting over to coal. Um, but with gas emitting less CO2 per megawatt hour than coal, carbon prices essentially increase the competitive competitiveness of gas in the power sector or else being equal. So with carbon prices rallying so strongly this year, that has essentially increased the price that gas needs to reach in order to switch out power generation um, towards coal. So that has also been an upside driver. So essentially the market was unable to rebuild inventory over summer and now ahead of winter we're essentially looking at having less um, inventory than so, normal. Um, so yeah, so for, sorry for interrupting. So you're saying um, on the one hand it was the weather side uh, and that was you know uh, that would perhaps be a temporary factor but on the other hand there is a more structural side to the story which has to do with the substitution into coal that would usually happen not taking place because of the carbon pricing. Now, you know, can we sort of decompose the effect into, you know, how much of this is temporary? How much is due to this more structural factor? Uh, do you have, do we have a feel of how much is what? Yes, yeah, we can, we can jump in there. So really it's not possible to disentangle the factors. And I'd probably say that the market has become more susceptible to 
one-off factors like the weather due to emerging structural factors. So I mentioned um, earlier the importance of flexibility. So on the supply side, domestic production has been in decline for many years. Now, a lot of that can be attributed to the shutdown of the Groningen field in the Netherlands uh, for environmental reasons. So this was what was termed a supergiant field with a production profile that incorporated a significant amount of seasonality. Essentially, we could flex production between winter and summer to match the demand trend. Now, with this field essentially being shut down, the European market needs to import its flexibility, typically via LNG. So this means that the gas market is you know, vulnerable to global gas market dynamics. So when we have a very tight LNG market, like we saw through 2021, it means that Europe needs to price to compete for this flexible LNG, typically with Asian buyers. Now, we typically see the JKM TTF spread move in based on the relative competitiveness of European imports or, or Asian imports. So on the supply side, we have that structural factor. The other structural factor on the demand side is really the fact that coal capacity has been in decline for around about a decade now, which means that when we do try to switch from gas to coal, the amount of gas that's freed up is less than what would have been the case around 10 or so years ago. Um, the carbon price does feed into this as well typically because, well, we, we think that the carbon price is structurally bullish, really, due to the carbon uh, and broader environmental policies of the EU, which means that increasingly we will need to see gas pricing higher in order to switch towards the remaining coal capacity. So these two factors essentially mean that, you know, the gas price is likely to be biased higher than the range that has typified the past 10 years. And and what role does geopolitics play here, and and particular vis-a-vis Russia? How how dependent is Europe on on Russia, and and is it now more dependent? It, it seems like, given what you're saying, that the, the flexibility of the market is is smaller, or else equal that it increases the leverage of of Russia over Europe. Is that right? Yeah. So Russia is the key supplier to the European market. So typically ranging between 25 and 30 percent of the total gas supply. So Russian volumes probably wouldn't change with Nord Stream 2 operational. So the idea is that simply transit shifts from legacy pipeline routes towards Nord Stream 2. Now, a lot of the argument obviously centers on that and the fact that transit fees would go down for Ukraine and Poland and also you know, the geopolitical leverage of you know, hosting critical infrastructure within your borders would be diminished. But generally, I'd say that you know it's impossible to separate geopolitics from natural gas. And there has been... Um, an element of that this year. So the key thing to say is that Russia has been supplying its contracted volumes, but the issue is that normally, if marginal economics worked, Russia would ship additional gas to make profit. And when we look at prices now, obviously there's money to be made by shipping marginal gas to Europe, but Russia hasn't been doing this. And the question we need to ask is why? So my thinking has really evolved over the past month or two. So initially, it did seem that Russia was having a supply crisis of its own and needed to refill domestic storage. Um, but we have the trajectory and the date for this storage refill in Russia to be complete. And that's the 1st of November was actually pushed back to the 8th of November. But that should mean that, you know, this free gas to export for Europe uh, towards Europe, sorry, in November. So at Gazprom's capacity auctions in October for November transit additional gas wasn't booked, then 
Russian President Putin then came out and said, well, Europe could get more gas if Nord Stream 2 was sanctioned. So that really suggests that Nord Stream 2 is the reason why gas hasn't flowed. So there was a really interesting quote in an article I read yesterday. It essentially said, well, Russia didn't start the fire, but they're standing over the hose pipe. Now, I don't think that Nord Stream 2 was developed as a weapon, um, but Russia, perhaps Putin, have moved opportunistically to link higher gas exports to the sanction of the pipeline, perhaps just to get it over the line, because you know there was a lot of opposition to it from Ukraine, from Poland, from the US as well. So this was maybe a way just to ensure sanctioning. Now, earlier this week, we saw the German Economic Ministry essentially given a green light to Nord Stream 2. Um, now, latest Russian statements that more gas will now flow in mid-November. So that does seem like well, okay, there is a, a key link between the sanction of this pipe and more, more Russian exports. Now, on the second half of your question, broadly reliance on Russia is a function of global gas market tightness. So I've been talking about the tight LNG market. That means that Europe is more reliant on Russia for marginal above contracted gas flows. And we've seen what happens this year when Russia is unwilling to you know, flow that additional gas. But I think it's interesting to think but when the dust settles, Europe is going to respond, right? And the response isn't going to be to increase dependence on, on Russian gas. And so Russia is as dependent on Europe as Europe is dependent on, on Russia, in a sense, because gas pipelines are fixed. It's legacy infrastructure. So I, I think the, the reliance is obviously intertwined and Europe is likely to transition away from Russian gas reliance, which in the long run might actually damage Russia. Yeah, if you see not as a reliable supplier, obviously in the short run you're on the upper hand, but in the medium term, as you said, there's going to be a response. And I guess that may explain why why Putin is now signaling actually you get more gas. Right. So now let's um, maybe come to a more broader topic uh, that has uh, attracted attention in recent parts, and that is the fact that uh, the gas infrastructure apparently seems to be a major source of uh, greenhouse gas emissions through the leakage of uh, methane. And uh, that's a much more powerful greenhouse gas than CO2. It's perhaps less persistent in the atmosphere, but it is much, much more powerful. So the question is, how will this affect, you know, these insights and the increased attention on these facts affect the industry going forward and also the gas price? Is this an easy problem to fix or is it so widespread that, you know, it will push to, to, to the price pressures, it will add to the price pressures? Yeah, so it's a key key question, and methane leakage is an issue that really is across the entire gas chain, you know, from leaky pipelines, processes, as well as actually at the wellhead. Now, I think if we think that the gas industry is going to have a long-term future, it's going to be something that the industry is going to have to tackle head-on. Just one thing to justify emissions from combustion of your commodity but emissions that are from pure wastage, just unacceptable, right? So I saw one estimate that said, well, to tank around 20% of emissions are from actual um, you know, processing or production you know, before the combustion. So trying to eliminate this 20% of emissions is going to be critical for hydrocarbon companies and gas companies especially to actually keep the social license uh, to operate. But I think the industry does recognise this. In some production geographies, methane abatement can be considered 
relatively low hanging fruit. And the main thing really is to identify leaks. So first thing is measurement, and that's become a lot more simple in recent years. We have several firms using satellites to track leaks, for example, in the US upstream, where you have you know, lots of wells, very dispersed production, companies have been using drones and they've been able to um, essentially reduce these leaks significantly. But for other geographies, uh, it's really not so easy. Now, aside from you know, this current period where we're seeing the historic correlation between oil and natural gas essentially dislocate, oil is normally the premium product. So often what we'd see is oil development essentially sanctioned, but with no um, no kind of plan made for the associated gas that would be produced with that oil. So in a lot of cases, we have oil infrastructure built with no thought to gas and you just vent or flare it. Now, in these cases, it's a bit more difficult to capture that methane just because there isn't the infrastructure in case in place. Sorry. So there's it's not that infrastructure is leaking. It's just that there's no infrastructure whatsoever. Now, in terms of costs, the IEA methane tracker came out in 2019. Now, in some cases, um, abatement has negative costs because obviously it's gas that you're losing. It has value now at the burner tip if you can capture it. Um, in more extreme cases, they estimate that it could be up to $4 per MBTU um, to capture that gas now with the current price and $30. I mean, that's a bit of a rounding error. Um, more normal pricing would be around $8. So it could be a significant um, part of it, but they do estimate that 40% of methane could be captured at no cost. So a mixed bag, but definitely something the industry needs to focus on going forwards. One one issue in this context is um, how to finance it in the sense that green... So will that underinvestment, well, first, is there an underinvestment you expect it to continue? And if so, won't that push up prices further structurally for a long time? Yeah, I think we should talk about oil here mainly. So I do think there has been an underinvestment and crucially it's been underinvestment in conventional oil. So there's been capital starvation really in the oil industry since around 2015 and the oil price crash. It's just that slowdown in conventional investment has essentially been masked by strong growth in US shale oil. So US shale oil growth, growth essentially represented about 70% of non-OPEC growth in seven of the past eight years. And now what's really critical is that US tight oil producer reactivity to higher oil prices has really surprised the downside through 2021 with the kind of level of operating rigs, um, level of drilled wells, well below the historic range for the current oil price. And the key driver of this lack of production response and reactivity has been investor pressure to limit reinvestment rates. So EMPs in the US consistently outspent their operating cash flow prior to 2021. They've burnt through billions in investor capital. Now across the tight oil space, investors have limited access to capital, as you're mentioning, whilst demanding that reinvestment rates are capped at around 70%. Um, so shunning growth capex, these companies have diverted higher operating cash flow associated with the higher prices this year, uh, essentially towards shareholder distributions now, this focus on dividends is slightly structural for US title oil shareholding, um, simply because, um, sorry, it's slightly structural because shareholding has become concentrated amongst dividend value funds and distributions are a good way to return cash to shareholders and certain on 
a long-term value proposition of investing in you know, carbon intensive industries amidst the broader energy transition. So this new dynamic does have several interesting implications because we can think about the future hurdle rate for marginal tight oil supply and longer dated prices in order to incentivize you know, marginal production from US tight oil, essentially needing to incorporate an adequate return to capital providers the risk of investing in oil and gas companies in an increasingly carbon conscious world. So to pull it bluntly, right, stakeholders are no longer willing to subsidize oil prices via capital destruction, which in essence does bias the cost of the marginal short cycle oil barrel higher. And it's not just about upstream assets either. So it's about everything that comes with them. So storage, transit. Um, so we've talked about why we think the European gas market is biased higher due to a lack of flexibility. If we are going to manage the transition, we do need to invest in fossil fuel resiliency, even if the longer term demand trajectory is a plateau or even a decline. So it does seem that when it comes to you know, critical infrastructure, the European Commission is talking about investing more in gas storage, things like that. So, you know, it definitely needs um, investment going forwards. Um, but whether we can kind of get that investment is uh, definitely up for debate. So you talked a lot about the substitution between gas and um, oil markets or the gas and the coke market, um, the coal market. So, you know, what about the transition into the green? You know, um, do you see a lot of substitution into, um, you know, will these high prices allow an easier transition into the green energy production? Or is that just not a substitute because it cannot provide the sort of flexibility, uh, you know, that is associated with conventional production? And also, are there, you know, do you see some political risks associated with currently high prices in the conventional energy sector, uh, sort of, you know, making it much less popular to embark on this green transition? Yeah, no, this is a super hard question. I think really the answer is, is both. I mean, on the path that we're going down, if the cost of capital continues to increase in natural resource companies, whilst consumption remains you know, relatively steady, maybe not growing, but at least plateauing, there's no doubt that energy costs are going to rise. And obviously this is coming at the end of a generational pandemic event that disproportionately hit the most vulnerable people in society, you know, in precarious employment, things like that. So people don't generally uh, vote to get poorer. Um, but if we are going to transition successfully away, we do need and shift in consumer behavior. So really, we think we probably need to have an honest conversation about the trade-offs that the energy transition involves. While shield, shielding the vulnerable in society from the price rises that might be associated with that transition, I think it is also interesting to think about certain fossil fuels, especially gas within the transition. You mentioned the substitutability. So natural gas's niche is as an intermittency solution in the future. So the idea is that we'll have our power generation baseload be renewables, but when we do see renewables, um, renewable generation drops, we saw it with wind in the UK through September, gas will step in as an intermittency solution. So just for background for wind generation in the UK, the UK is all in the same wind zone. So that means that when wind speed drops, it drops across the entire country um, and generation across the entire sector essentially is lower. So that means that gas is needed as a stopgap. Um, but this is a demand swing that's atypical for the gas market. So we're used to 
a summer to winter swing. So in that case, gas prices are likely to be more volatile anyway. So baseload gas, although it's the same molecule uh, as intermittency gas, it's, it's a different commodity essentially. So when it does come to fossil fuels and the transition, one element is of course lower demand, but other factors include, you know, how do we price these new ways of uh, of consumption or these new kind of niches that fossil fuels might might have a miss kind of broader kind of renewables generation. So to, to sum up or to give an attempt to sum up of what you said, uh, the, the energy markets are, are not going to get back to normal or historical normal normalcy anytime soon. Uh, I guess that would that be a fair summary? <laughs> that would be a fair summary. We're seeing underinvestment and that's resulting in a lack of flexibility whilst demand remains relatively steady. Which means we will have to reinvite you at some point again, uh, Joel, uh, to this podcast. Thanks again for your time. Thanks again for, for the insights. I learned a lot and I hope our listeners did as well and talk to you at some point in the future. Thanks for having me on. It was a pleasure. 